You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. The Japanese yen holds gains while the S&P 500 retreats and the Aussie dollar nears a four-year low. The U.S. economy grew faster in the third quarter, faster than first expected, capping its strongest six months in a decade. And China will wait until the fourth quarter economic index is released before considering further rate cuts. On Money for Nothing this morning, Marcel Talent of Capital Economics will join us to talk about the latest developments on monetary policy from the Bank of Japan. Michael Kurtz of Nomura Securities will share his 2015 Asia outlook and Matt Reed of Maximal Concepts talks about the opening of Limewood, a new beach restaurant in Repulse Bay. Stuart Allcroft of City Trust joins us as guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. Have you made it out to Limewood, the new hip and happening uh, spot on Repulse Bay? No, I was just talk- talking to Matt about it uh, before you came on the air. So, okay. uh, no, I haven't. It's a long way to go from Discovery Bay, actually. I've I told him maybe we ought to have one of his um, restaurants over on Discovery Bay Beach there. Well, that's definitely an idea, but, you know, it's well <laughs> worth the effort. So hold those thoughts because we'll be talking about them. We will do. A little later in the show. Okay, let's look at uh, today's top stories first. Uh, the Japanese yen held gains against the U.S. dollar as U.S. stocks retreated from record highs and oil slid. This is after a choppy session marked by mixed economic indicators. The U.S. Uh, Commerce Department raised its estimate of gross domestic product growth to an annualized 3.9%. That's from a 3.5% previously. And the rise reflects upward revisions to business and consumer spending, as well as restocking. The conference board, however, reported that consumer confidence in the U.S. unexpectedly fell. So the Dow Jones ended down two points at 17,814. The S&P 500 lost two points to 2,067. And the NASDAQ gained three points to 4,000. Now, Mark Kiesel is the chief investment officer for global credit at PIMCO, and he says that the U.S. economy is actually doing quite well. They're decoupling from the rest of the world, particularly in developed markets. And what that GDP report showed this morning is that actually if you strip out the government sector, for the last several years, U.S. economy is actually growing at 3% real. So this, this economy is actually kicking in. The consumer is benefiting from lower interest rates and improving labor market and low energy prices, which is going to be a big positive come this holiday season. So if the U.S. economy is doing well, at what point do interest rates turn around? There's just not a lot of growth and inflation and inflationary expectations are coming down, particularly in Europe. That's causing policymakers to have to implement more growth-friendly initiatives. So you're going to see QE next year in Europe. You're going to see the Bank of Japan go to 73% of GDP. And that's all taking bond yields down and flattening yield curves. And that, that is indirectly having an impact on the U.S. through, through low interest rates. But the U.S. is decoupled from the rest of the world. Mark says that this will result in the currency further strengthening. 
You're looking at Europe basically with a 1% growth outlook, Japan with a 1% growth outlook. U.S. is growing at roughly 3%. So economically, the countries are diverging. At the same time, monetary policy is set to ease further in Japan and Europe, while in contrast, we could start to see some gradual tightening. In the U.S., although we think this tightening is going to be ra rather gradual because it, the global economy is still quite weak. Oil prices tumbled again to near four-year lows, reversing early gains after a meeting between Saudi Arabia, Venezuela and major non-OPEC oil exporters ended with no deal on curbing output. U.S. State Department Bureau of Energy Resources Amos Hochstein says that uh, if a further drop happens, uh, this is what it could mean for American oil producers. So I think the remarkable story about American production, uh, the unconventional side of American production, is that the cost has actually gone down over time. So we do pay attention to look at where, uh, where the cost productions are going to be affected if the price goes down below a certain level. Uh, but I also think that as we go in the next year or two, we're going to see those prices, those limits of price go down further due to the great efficiency and technology advancements that the American companies are going through. And I think what really has surprised people around the world and other countries as well as companies is looking at the resiliency of the American shale revolution, the oil shale revolution, uh, and how it can cope at prices even at below $80 when there was some early assumptions that that would hit our production, and it clearly hasn't. Uh, and this is a message, I think, around the world. Invest in technology, invest in innovation, allow for uh, the growth of private sector in the energy sector so that we can have a world that's more diversified than just OPEC. And I think the world we live in today, compared to a few years ago, when OPEC was able to dominate the market, we're in a different place now. And that's good for America. It's good for the world. It's good for a good global uh, energy economy. So, Stuart, uh, good news on U.S. GDP, not so good news on uh, U.S. consumer confidence and no deal yet on oil prices. What's your take? Well, uh, one of the things I haven't heard many economists talking about is the fact that with these lower oil prices, which I regard to be a very positive thing, this ought to bring in a much lower inflation, if not even deflation, because the proportion that oil represents in most economies and, and the impact it has on, on just the, the cost of doing business. So I think that's a very good sign. Um, consumer confidence, I, I don't see any signs of that not being positive in the US, and I think that... Uh, well, We've got this Black Friday coming up shortly, uh, and I think that might prove to be a very positive um, indicator. Now, Stuart, you mentioned deflation, but deflation is a worry in this part of the world. Uh, Japan's worried about it. China's possibly worried about it. Um, how do you think the oil prices or, you know, the, the declining oil prices, I should say, impact uh, countries outside of the U.S.? Asia is going to be a major beneficiary of lower oil prices because it doesn't import uh, – sorry, it does import or, or most of its oil needs, uh, particularly for Japan. Uh, Japan is going to be a beneficiary in, in enormous beneficiary too. So I, I think Asia has uh, some very good indicators currently going on out there, not yet reflected in the markets. All right. Well, a top central bank official says that the People's Bank of China will wait until the fourth quarter economic index is released before considering further rate cuts and easing. Chen Yulu, who sits on the central bank's monetary policy committee, also said that any decision would depend on U.S. and Japanese monetary policy. Mr. Chen said that uh, last Friday's rate cut did not represent a change in monetary policy 
And yesterday, the central bank also cut the yield for key short-term money rate. Stuart, what do you make of all of this? Do you, do you, think, do you agree that this is not actually a change in monetary policy at large? Um, no, there is a change going on. But um, as I think we've seen with the central bank in China, um, it, it likes to take a measured approach before doing anything. So, uh, And I, I was reading a report just a short while ago which was suggesting that uh, following one rate cut, a second rate cut could be expected. Uh, the economy in China d- does need that sort of stimulus. Um, and we, we talked about inflation, but uh, China doesn't need to worry too much about inflation either. It's the economic growth that is most important for China still. And, and as long as it stays within the 7 to 8% band, uh, that, that will remain a very good indicator for growth in the economy. Okay, so the governor of the Bank of Japan, Haruhiko Kuroda, has stressed that the bank's uh, readiness to expand stimulus further to meet its price goal. Uh, Rejecting criticism, of course, that last month's unexpected monetary easing has accelerated unwelcome falls in the currency. And he said that the Bank of Japan will continue to take action to vanquish deflation. And he defended the October 31st easing as necessary to ensure that the Japanese public shakes off its deflationary mindset and to encourage companies to start investing and hiring more. Rogers Holdings chairman Jim Rogers is bullish on Japan stocks because they are 60% down, even though he doesn't agree with Abenomics. He's going to ruin Japan. But in the next two or three years, I hope he's going to make me a lot of money, you know, in the investment community. He's making stocks go up. He's going, to ru- uh, he's going to ruin Japan because of the debt burden. The debt, debasing your currency, I mean, everything he's doing is wrong for the next 20 years. But as investors, you can make money out of that. For this year, he's encouraging pension plans to buy shares. He's given tax incentives for individuals to buy shares. He's pouring money into the economy. All of this is good for stock market. It's not good for Japan. If you're 10 years old in Japan, you better leave. You know, but if you're 30 years old, buy shares. All right, let's bring in Marcel Talent, who is a Japan, Japan economist at Capital Economics. Good morning, Marcel. Money. Marcel, do you agree with Jim Rogers in that Abenomics is no good for Japan? No, I don't agree. I mean, I think uh, inflation is the only answer to, to solve Japan's uh, debt problem. I mean, obviously, uh, some deficit reduction is also needed, but that alone won't do it. So I think uh, what the BOJ is aiming to do here, bring back inflation, is, is really the, the only way to solve the, the public debt problem. I, th- I think um, we've seen with Japan that it needs the stimulus of economic inflation um, and also needs to be able to keep manufacturing. So are you seeing companies there getting more active in, in um, producing goods, getting them sold overseas? Um, well, I, th- I think there's a bit of a misconception with all this outsourcing. I think it doesn't – a lot of the empirical evidence suggests that it doesn't uh, – impair production in, in Japan as much as, as uh, everybody thinks. In terms of uh, whether the weekend has encouraged uh, firms to shift uh, back to domestic production, there's some evidence, but obviously the labor market is already quite tight. So uh, I think firms uh, are a bit reluctant to, to uh, make these kind of long-term adjustments simply because they don't have the, the workforce to do that in the long term. How much lower so, do you think the yen can go? Well, our forecast is for 140 by the end of next year. Wow, that's ambitious. Um, sorry? That's it, very ambitious. It is ambitious, but it's, 
if you look, we've already seen uh, almost a 50% depreciation over the last uh, two years. So another 20% from here on isn't that much, actually. And obviously, this is dependent on the BOJ expanding stimulus further, which we think will happen sometimes next year. Uh, given that inflation will still probably fall short of their target. So, Marcel, there appears to be some kind of discord amongst the various members of the, the board members of the Bank of Japan. Uh, the minutes of uh, the October 31st meeting showed one board member saying that a further decline in, yen, in the yen would spark a concern of adverse effect on smaller firms. But other members said uh, that additional government bond buying would further heighten the risk that such a move would be perceived as effectively financing fiscal debts. What do you make of this? Um, well, these concerns need to be taken seriously, and I think uh, Mr. Kuroda uh, addressed them in, especially the letter concern, addressed them in, in the last press conference where he was a bit critical of the government's decision to de- delay the sales tax hike. On the other hand, I think um, if the public perceives that uh, the BOJ monetizes public debt, to some extent that is actually in his interest, because that probably ends up uh, with high inflation expectations, and that's what, what the BOJ eventually wants. The risk is, of course, that these inflation expectations get out of control, but at the moment we're, we're not seeing any evidence of that. You know, uh, uh, fi- uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, in, in terms of the weak yen, it's, it's uh, obviously a differentiated story. I mean, the big firms profit, which is also why the stock markets uh, are, have been doing very well. But if the consumer suffers and small firms who don't export also suffer. Mm. It depends a bit on, on which side of the story you take here. Uh, at the moment, the, the aggregate effect has probably been uh, slightly negative because the big firms have not passed on these higher wages, uh, these higher profits uh, in terms of higher wages. You know, Finance Minister Taro Aso said uh, that the yen has weakened too fast. Do you agree with him? I don't really know how to, to say whether currency depreciates too fast or not. I mean, it, it, in 2012, we saw even faster depreciation, and back then everybody seemed uh, rather happy about it. So I, I'm not sure why such a uh, actually the depreciation now was a bit a bit less rapid. So I don't think it, it will be that big of a problem. What do you think, Stuart? I think that's a political statement he made. <laughs> um, we've got the Japanese election coming up, I suppose, early next year, so that could have some impact, and, 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 and we should expect some of these more political statements being made the, during that period. All right. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Marcel Talent, Japan economist at Capital Economics. <laughs> Time is now 8.17 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move to our next segment. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 17,359. Australia's ASX is up almost 1% to 5,371. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, one-fifth of a percent to 1,984. Well, everybody, uh, fasten your seatbelts for a choppy ride. The coming year in Asia won't be an easy one. Um, 
um, as investors can expect volatile markets. Uh, this is according to Nomura Securities' uh, Michael Kurtz. Uh, Chris Oliver investigates this with him. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Uh, Nomura has released their 2015 outlook uh, report tra- uh, entitled Choppy Seas Ahead. Uh, the gist of the report is that the spillover from a China slowdown, a, a weakening Japanese yen, and potentially U.S. Uh, interest rate hikes could expose weaknesses in Asia. Uh, we're joined now by Michael Kurtz. He's uh, head of global equity strategy at Nomura. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Chris. Okay, so you, you, you start off your report uh, writing that uh, fund managers should uh, steer clear of Asia's pockets of risk. Uh, what are those risks in 2015? You actually touched upon them in your introduction a moment ago. I would say those principal risks do include, uh, first of all, the uh, gradual process towards uh, progress, pardon me, towards the, the point at which the Fed actually begins to hike interest rates. We think that comes in the third quarter of next year. And while it will be driven by growth and therefore will be the flip side of a positive, uh, it nonetheless does historically tend to bring some volatility in markets. And I think secondly, it is the fact that China seems now Uh, more intent on allowing a process of economic moderation to play out. We won't really see this fully formalized until the Economic Work Conference in Beijing, which comes sometime in the middle of December. But we expect that at that meeting they're going to formalize a 7% GDP growth target for next year. And that, of course, does carry implications for the rest of the region, given the role that China plays as sort of the regional engine of growth. Both of those two factors unfolding over the course of the next 6 to 12 months is certainly going to present some challenges, I think, for uh, navigating an equity portfolio. You uh, mentioned in the report that uh, continuing U.S. growth and, in particular, uh, falling commodity prices actually could support things here in Asia. Those are uh, certainly a couple of the positives. We do think that the U.S. economy uh, is now beginning to really come into stride in terms of the strength of the recovery. We, we see that, for example, in the upward revisions of Q3 GDP. And we have U.S. growth next year uh, in our numbers coming up uh, to about 3% uh, from 1.9 um, uh, in uh, 2014. And, of course, as a $16 trillion economy, that's a tremendous amount of incremental demand, much of which will spill over in a very constructive way into the export-intense economies of Asia. But uh, at the same time, I would say it's not just about top-line growth. It is about, of course, in the equity space, bottom-line earnings. And here, perhaps the lesser appreciated positive is the fact that with lower energy prices and with lower commodity prices, uh, in many cases, you're not only going to get some upside in top-line revenues, but also a better flow-through into profitability because of lower input costs. Just looking at some of the markets around the region here in Asia, uh, I see that uh, one of the conviction uh, calls is that Hong Kong is Asia's most vulnerable economy. Gosh, that doesn't sound very good for us uh, folk here in Hong Kong. Sadly, no. Um, there are some economies and some equity markets that we think will do very well next year uh, in the context of the positives that I just mentioned. But Hong Kong, uh, rather to the contrary, finds itself, I think, in a bit of a of a vice between both the China slowdown, to which Hong Kong's economy quite naturally is particularly uh, uh, vulnerable, and secondly, the uh, uh, in, uh, you know upcoming increase in, in Fed interest rates, given the fact that Hong Kong still operates on a U.S. dollar peg, which obligates the HKMA to basically import U.S. monetary policy, 
but also because, of course, the Hong Kong equity market is particularly rich in property developers and local banks uh, that in large part are, uh, you know, very uh, exposed themselves to the property sector through a combination of mortgage lending and lending to the developers and lending to local businesses that is often collateralized with property. And so when we think about the impact of both rising rates and a stronger U.S. dollar, historically that tends to impart some rather significant uh, disinflationary or deflationary pressures into the local property market with a consequent spillover effect into local stocks. And that unfortunately means that Hong Kong is likely to be one of the poorer performers in 2015. Just to uh, to wrap up uh, in a moment or two, uh, you also have some favored picks. I see you're more optimistic on Korea, and uh, India is actually pegged as the fastest growing economy in the region. That's right. And as a matter of fact, given the, the China moderation that I just uh, mentioned, India, in our forecasts, in fact, becomes the region's strongest growing economy, not next year, but by 2016. And India also is particularly uh, positively exposed to the decline in commodity and energy prices, India being a very large importer of both energy and hard commodities, and that not only helps Indian companies from a cost perspective, but it also brings down this high level of Indian inflation to the benefit of, uh, of, a, of a smoother monetary policy path. Uh, Taiwan also comes out looking much better in our mapping of risk and opportunity around the region. And it's, in fact, those two economies, Taiwan and India, uh, Korea probably coming in third here, but slightly distant after those first two, um, in that they are all, uh, I think, much more downstream beneficiaries of lower energy prices, and generally speaking, the more cyclical economies that are able to take advantage of uh, the ongoing recovery of the U.S. All right. Thank you very much, Michael. That's uh, Michael Kurtz. He's head of Global Equity Strategy at Numero. And thank you, Chris. And now for a local business story. Well, Repulse Bay in Hong Kong hasn't been much more than a quiet beach destination for a long time. But things are set to change now that with much anticipation, the Pulse is finally open. The 200,000-square-foot shopping complex right on the beach in Repulse Bay is home to fashionable boutiques and health food outlets and a relaxing spa. And to differentiate itself from other such venues in the city, it's offering value-added services like valet parking, free Wi-Fi, handicapped services, and a vast range of chic restaurants like Cafe Academics and Classified. We're now joined by Matt Reed, who is the director of Maximal Concepts, to learn more about their contribution to The Pulse, which is a beach bar called Limewood. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. So, Matt, the Limewood had its soft opening last night, and judging from the crowds, it didn't look anything like day one of operations. Looked like you'd been there forever. Well, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a great first evening, and we were really proud of the team. They, they came through great, and the food came up perfectly, so we were really happy. Yeah, now, you have a load of other restaurants in uh, sort of busier areas where you get perhaps more foot traffic, you know, in, in Central, in Wan Chai, so on and so forth. Why have you chosen Repulse Bay? Um, we live on a tropical island, and uh, we think we forget that sometimes. And uh, we, when we went down there and we saw the beach and, um, and the, the vista and uh, the whole feeling, we, we really loved the whole the whole feeling of it and so we we felt that we all wished that we spent more time eating in front of the sea yeah i think uh you, you can put me in that camp uh Stuart, i think uh you're also upset that they haven't uh, ventured out to discovery bay yet 
Well, um, that's a bit flippant on my part. I mean, let's let them get going and uh, Repulse Bay. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things about Repulse Bay, I, I was just saying to Matt earlier, I, I used to go down onto the beach there 20 years ago, and uh, and then it you got... You haven't been to, there since? Uh, no, I have been once or twice, but not that often. Uh, but they used to have some good restaurants just to sit on the beach, and if, if, if bringing back that concept, you know, that's great. Now, people love that in this town, and um, and the opportunity to do so is, is so important. So, you know, the truth is there are beaches and beaches and beaches in Hong Kong. You know, Matt, as you say, it is a tropical island. How has the Pulse made uh, this offer specifically attractive for vendors like you? Well, one of the biggest issues is that um, most of the land in front of the beaches is government-owned, and so you're highly restricted as to how you can utilise it. And the Pulse has the advantage that we are right adjacent to the beach, but it's their land, so we can we can utilise it better. Um, and I think even last night you could see we had a, a good 10 to 15 kids and they were able to run in and out and the parents could see them on the beach and not have to worry about it. And that's a huge advantage. It was a huge, huge advantage also with the way uh, the restaurant set up. You had the, a bar on one side and uh, more of the sit-down restaurant, if you will, on the other side. Still very casual. Are there other unique features you can tell us about? Like, for example, can you bring dogs, which is a very Repulse Bay thing to do? Um, you can indeed. Um, we've already got dog bowls out and ready. Um, and we've actually designed the restaurant so you can sit partially inside, partially outside um, over the... the the, the cusp of the restaurant, so to speak, and so if you do have a dog, yeah, we, we very much welcome uh, And what's the food concept you've got there? Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, <laughs> the food is a combination of Hawaiian, um, South American, Southeast Asian, and a little element of the Caribbean food. So as you might realise, there is some of the most iconic beach cuisines mixed in there. And uh, So Calypso feeling, you've got Calypso music as well? Um, no, we, there is obviously a, a small tone of reggae and a, a little bit of the sort of Jack Johnson vibe for sure. So after a few drinks, people are dancing as well? They've got the whole beach to dance on, right? They do. We have a, we have a wonderful selection of margaritas, which do tend to equal dancing. Ah, yes, that will help. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and is that what you were trying, Renita? Um, something close to it. <laughs> um, okay, so currently the restaurant's open for dinner, but do you have plans to open for lunch or brunch? Absolutely. In fact, we, we hope to be open almost consistently. So from as with all restaurants, we, the first few weeks you, you, you get the, the initial services working and then you add to it. So lunch will be launching from the 15th of December. And then from that point, we'll be open seven days a week, lunch and dinner. Uh, and weekends? Yes, of course. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, more margarita evenings at the Limewood with my dog. Uh, yeah, I've got your plans <laughs> organized, right? <laughs> All sorted, Stuart. I think you need to come down and join us. It's really quite pleasant. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Matt Reed. He is the director of Maximal Concepts. Much appreciated. And uh, Stuart, we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, not even a few minutes, just one minute before we wrap up the show. So tell us uh, what's on the agenda for this week, what, should we, what we should be looking out for. Well, I think we've talked about this a few times, but clearly there are really positive signs from, from the U.S. economy, from the U.S. markets generally. Uh, and overall, you know, I think that's going to keep getting fed through Stock markets are sort of drifting at the moment. We're getting quite close to the Christmas period. 
And, and quite frankly, uh, you know, at this point, investors should just wait and see for, for what happens next. All right, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Enjoy uh, your margaritas. I will. <laughs> thank you. That's Stuart Aldcroft of City Trust. He joins us every Wednesday as co-host. A quick look at the currencies before we depart this morning. One euro will buy you 1.24 US dollars. One US dollar is worth 117 Japanese yen. And one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 19 cents. Brent crude oil is currently at $78.33 and gold is at $1,200 US dollars and 40 cents per ounce. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. There will be sunny periods in the morning and at night with uh, visibility relatively low in some areas at first. The temperature right now is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 81%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Pierre Tremblay. Bailiffs are moving in again in Mongkok this time to enforce the court-ordered removal of Occupy protesters and their barricades from Nathan Road. A much smaller operation yesterday to reopen Argyle Street led to an afternoon and night of clashes in which pepper spray was hosed on protesters and nearly 90 people were arrested. RTHK's Maggie Ho is at the Nathan Road Occupy Zone. Maggie? Yes, Pierre. Um, several dozen uh, uniformed police officers are standing guard right now outside the barricade at, at the junction of Nathan Road and Argyle Street. Behind them parked more than 20 police vans. Officers are expected to give warning any time now before they actually move in. And protesters on their part are also prepared for the operation. Many of them have put on their masks and have their helmets and goggles ready. This operation targets the whole of the occupied section of Nathan Road between Argyle and Dundas Street. And uh, this follows last night's clearance of a relatively smaller area on Argyle Street, which saw the arrest of more than 80 people. Also present here are about 